bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, of course, normally I would be welcoming you to my study, but in this case, as you might be able to hear, we're recording somewhere different. Uh, we, being myself and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Uh, before getting into it, I should probably thank all the well-wishers from our last episode who congratulated us on our five years of Bone and Sickle. Yes, thank you. And uh, if you're a new listener, I should also uh, probably catch you up a bit on our resident owl, who hasn't been discussed much lately. Not on the show. You do talk about her, just not on the show. At least not for two episodes. Oh, I I thought it was longer. Uh, Anyway, she's a a huge, beautiful bird, a Eurasian eagle owl by the name of Strix, and... uh, She's going to be joining us tonight as a special guest. Or we're joining her. Yes, we're out in her habitat. It's an old solarium added to the house in the 1880s, but not really used since a hailstorm knocked out a lot of the glass when I was a kid. When I got her, I had the structure covered over with wire netting, so it's nice and airy and she has plenty of room to fly. And things to eat. I heard them run the first time we came out. That's good. I was worried she'd eaten them all. (laughs) Plenty of rats. I haven't heard any for the last hour. Uh, Mr. Ridenour has been setting up out here since about nine. It's eleven now. Well, she is a night owl. Uh, Sorry about the late start, though. And I do want to thank... Mrs. Carswell, for being a good sport about all this, I should note that she is uh, well inside the solarium tonight, a good ten feet past the door, and maybe only twenty feet from Strix, something I know took a bit of extra reserve. Well, like ten feet from Strix and twenty feet from the door. Well, we'll call it fifteen and fifteen, then. Uh, Anyway, I, I know you've not been exactly comfortable around her, so I am publicly thanking you for being so accommodating. Mr. Ridenauer has been recording Strix, hooting, and wanted to include it in our intro. He has a little trick to get her to hoot on command, which he wants to demo live, it seems. Right. No editing. You'll hear it live, so to speak. Um, I'm kind of proud of the training. I have her actually hooting on command. All I have to do is point at her. And not just me, she responded also to Anders when he pointed, so I bet she'd do it with you, too, if you want. Me? Yes. No. What do you mean? I saw you do it. She looks like she's angry when you point. No, no, she likes it. She did it all on her own. It seems aggressive, like she's responding to aggression, like 
If you stare at a strange dog and make it nervous and angry... No, no. She and I have a rapport. It's like a game for her. She's very intelligent. For an owl? Yes, even for an owl. Um, well, I... You know, enough chit-chat. Let's just hear what Strix has to say. Are you... Are you ready? Yes. Okay, then. <laughs> there you go. Strix has spoken. She's she's officially part of our show now. I guess that wraps it up. I'll go make some tea. Oh, just try it. Just try it. No. You you saw how easy it was. Anders did it. She looks angry. That's just her eyes. They they always look like that. She always looks angry. Just try it. It will give you a sense of. Um, mastery over the situation. I think it would really help you with some things. I don't. Oh, you work with bees, for heaven's sakes. Lots of people are terrified of bees. People can die from bee stings. I don't think an owl has ever killed anyone. You don't think? Well, no. The Peterson staircase thing was just ridiculous. An owl never killed anyone. I'm, I'm sure of it. Owls aren't bees. No, they don't kill people. I, I do think it would really help you, uh, you know, create a bond between the two of you. Okay, t tell you what, how about I scratch the idea of us recording more out here. All you have to do is take a moment to bond with her, to the point. Oh, for I... heaven's sake, all right. Great. I'll point one Time, and we won't keep trying it if she doesn't respond. And no more recording outside in the middle of the night. Fine. Okay. Now, you do have to look at her at the same time to get her attention. Uh, point and look. I never take my eyes off her. Okay, then. Well? No, 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 no. You have to raise your hand. Not from the wrist, from the elbow, out, extended. Not from your waist. You're going to confuse her. Ah, uh, there you go. That... Oh. <laughs> oh. 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 oh! No, 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 no! <laughs> I am your host, Al Reidenauer, in this show, Bone and Sickle. Oh. You probably know all about the horror and the folklore and the history and my book. Uh, breaking format here a bit, I just want to let you know that the incident with Strix didn't send anyone to the hospital. Just to be worried. I'm fine. And Mrs. Carswell is uh, currently in a room. And though she's not uh, speaking with me at the moment, I don't believe she sustained any physical injury. However, we will be omitting her segment, Carswell's Corner, from this episode for obvious reasons. But, uh, anyway, uh, Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including not one but two bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Thank you.
We have a new book at this time around, uh, one which may pop up in another episode in the future as it's a delightful read. It's a volume from 1915 called Human Animals by Frank Hamill. It covers werewolves, animal transformations through witchcraft and possession by totemic animals, but it also treats another unusual topic, which is what we'll be focusing on in this episode, namely animal ghosts. The well-known Cornish tradition says that if a young woman dies neglected after being betrayed by her lover, she haunts him after her death in the form of a white hare. The false lover is continuously pursued by the phantom. At times it may rescue him from danger, but in the end it is the cause of his death. The following story of a phantom hare pursuing a false lover to his death is told by Robert Hunt in Popular Romances of West England. A young farmer settled at a fine new farmhouse, and a peasant's daughter was placed there in charge of the dairy. The young farmer fell deeply in love with her and she with him, and he betrayed her under a promise of marriage, but his family refused to agree to the alliance taking place and provided a bride for him more suitable to his station. The dairymaid was sent away ignominiously when it was known that she was about to become a mother. One morning, the corpse of a newly born infant was found in the farmer's field, and the dairymaid was accused of strangling her child, and was finally convicted of murder and executed. But every day after that, ill fortune pursued the young farmer who had behaved in such a cowardly way, and though he removed to another place, to another part of the country, none of his projects prospered. Gradually, he took to drink to drown his secret sorrows. He generally went out at dusk, and it was noticed that a white hare constantly crossed his path. The animal was seen by many of the villagers to dart under the hooves of his horse, and the terrified steed rushed madly forward whenever the phantom appeared. A day came when the young farmer was found drowned in a pool at the bottom of a forsaken mine, and the frightened horse was still grazing near the mouth of the pit into which his master had fallen. The woman he had betrayed and left to die a shameful death, having assumed the shape of a white hare, had haunted the perjured and false-hearted farmer to his death. It is said that fatal accidents in mines are often foreshadowed by the appearance of a white hare or rabbit. At Wheel Vor, writes Mr. Hunt in Popular Romances of the West of England, it has always been and is now believed that a white rabbit appears in one of the engine houses when an accident may be looked for in the mine. The men say that they have chased the phantom animal without being able to catch them, and on one occasion the rabbit ran into a wind bore which lays on the ground and escaped. Likewise, in a French mine, one of the miners saw a white object run into an iron pipe and hide there. 
He hastened forward and stopped up both ends of the tube, calling to a companion to examine the pipe. But the animal ghost had disappeared, and nothing remained to explain what had taken place. The devil appeared in the form of a hare at the hanging of two men in Warminster Down in 1813, it was said. A farmer in South Wilts, who died about 1860, threatened to revisit his farm on a lonely moor and run about in the shape of a rat. The story does not say what he expected to gain by choosing this particular animal for his transformation. At Epworth Parsonage, Lincolnshire, when the Reverend Samuel Wellesley, daughter of John Wellesley, was rector, there is a well-known story of the haunting of the parsonage. Robert Brown, the servant, heard, among other phenomena, as it were, the gobbling of a turkey cock close to the bedside. The dog, a large mastiff, showed enormous fear of the strange incidents and apparitions. When the disturbances continued, he used to bark and leap and snap on one side or the other, and that frequently before any person in the room heard any noise at all. But after two or three days, he used to tremble and creep away before the noise began. And by that, the family knew it was at hand. Usott House in Crondall, Hampshire, was haunted by a ghost that made a noise exactly as though a flock of sheep from the paddock had rushed by the windows on the gravel drive. In the morning, however, there were no signs of sheep having passed that way. Willington Mill was haunted by several specters in the shape of animals. The mill stood on a tidal stream which ran into the Tyne near Wallsend. The account of strange happenings there was published by the Newcastle Weekly Leader many years ago. One of the servants once saw a lady in a lavender-colored dress pass the kitchen door, go upstairs, and vanish into one of the bedrooms. But little notice was taken of this apparition. Indeed, it was almost forgotten when something else happened which drew attention to it. A certain Thomas Davidson was courting his servant and was waiting for her to come out of the mill and join him in a moonlight ramble when, looking towards the building, he distinctly saw a whitish cat run out and presently it came close to his feet. Thinking the strange cat was very forward, he gave her a kick but encountered no solid matter and the feline continued her walk disappearing from his sight a moment later. Returning to the window and looking in the same direction, Davidson again saw the animal. This time it came hopping like a rabbit, coming quite as close to his feet as before. He determined to have a good rap at it and took deliberate aim, but as before, his foot went through it and he felt nothing. Again he followed it, and it disappeared at the same spot as its predecessor. The third time he went to the window, and in a few moments it made another appearance, not like a cat or rabbit now, but as large as a sheep and brightly luminous. On it came, and Davidson stood, rooted to the spot as though paralyzed, but the animal moved on and vanished as before. Mr. Proctor, who lived at the mill on hearing Davidson's account, said that he had seen the animal on various occasions. 
After this experience, ghosts were frequently seen and heard of at the mill. The noises were dreadful, sometimes sounding like a galloping donkey, at others like falling fire irons. Doors creaked and sticks crackled as though burning, and the rapping became almost incessant. Sometimes the lavender gowned lady appeared, and at another time several of the inmates of the mill saw a bald-headed old man in a flowing robe like a surplice. Spectral animals always formed an important feature of the haunting. In November 1841, a gentleman paid a visit to the place and was confronted by the figure of an animal about two feet high, which appeared in a window. After careful search, nothing was found, though the animal was seen in the window by others from the grounds for a half an hour, after which it slowly faded away. A two-year-old child saw a ghost kitten, while Davidson's aunt thought the specter looked like a white pocket handkerchief knotted at four corners, which danced up and down, leaping as high as the first-floor window. This lady was one day standing by the kitchen table when she was startled by the bark of a dog and two paws were laid heavily on her shoulders so that she had to lean against the table for support. No dog, however, was found in the house. On several occasions, the children, though nothing had been said to them about ghosts, found amusement in chasing up and down the stairs some animal they described either as a funny cat or a pretty monkey. In 1853, an attempt was made to discover the secret of the mystery of the mill by a clairvoyant who, in her trance, distinctly saw the lady like a shadow with no eyes, but with sight in them, as she described her, as well as a number of animals. When questioned about these, she answered, one is like a monkey, and another like a dog. Had the lady dogs and monkeys? They all go about the house. What is that other one? It is not a cat. It runs very fast and gets amongst feet. It is a rabbit, but a very quick one, she said. When asked whether the animals were real, the medium replied in her quaint way, We don't touch them to see them. We would not like to be bitten. Beyond this, there appears to have been no solution as to the mystery of the haunted mill, although the medium declared that the trouble came from the cellar. A writer in Notes and Queries, H. Wedgwood by name, visited Mr. Proctor in 1873 or 4 to ask him about the truth about the Willington Mill ghost, and he told her that he had seen a tabby cat in the furnace room. There was nothing unusual in the animal's appearance, and it would not have caught his attention particularly had it not begun to move. But then, instead of walking like an ordinary cat, it wriggled along like a snake. He went close to it and followed it across the room, holding his hand about a foot above it, until it passed straight into the solid wall. And uh, now we have one with a colt, but also a fly. 
An apparition of a lady in the form of a colt is somewhat unusual, but has been seen, if we may believe the statement of a woman called Sarah Mason. Sarah also saw the ghost of a man who hanged himself and came back afterwards in the form of a large black dog. The story of Obrick's cult concerned a lady who was buried with all her jewels and whose corpse was afterwards robbed by the clerk. She haunted the spot, it was said, in the shape of a cult, and the guilty clerk, meeting the phantom animal late one night in a narrow lane, went down on his knees and said earnestly, Abide, Satan, abide, I am a righteous man and a psalm singer. The clerk was called Obitch or Holbeach, from which the uh, ghost is supposed to have taken the name Obrick's Colt. An old woman in the village declared that Obitch used to say that he saw the coat as natural as any Christian, and he used to get up against the stile for him to get up on top of his back, and at last the colt grew so bull that folks saw him in the daytime. Holbeach, if that was his real name, never again knew peace of mind on this earth. On the 21st of January, 1879, a laborer had taken some luggage from one Shropshire village to another, and on the return journey, his horse being tired, he reached a canal bridge some way from home about 10 o'clock at night. To his horror, a huge black creature with gleaming white eyes jumped out of the edge and settled on the horse's back. He beat on the phantom with his whip, which, to his astonishment, instead of meeting with resistance, went through the apparition. The terrified horse broke into a canter and tore home with the strange creature clinging to its back. The adventure was much discussed in the neighboring villages, and some days later the laborer's master was called upon by a policeman who had somehow got knowledge of an account that he had been robbed when crossing the canal bridge in question late one evening. The policeman was told there had been no robbery, and a version of the tale as it happened was given to him. Was that all? he cried in disappointed tones. I know what that was. It was the monkey man, sir, comes at the bridge ever since a man was drowned in the canal on that spot. The following story was told to Berger Ferreau and happened at a country house on the plateau of the Garde near Toulon. One evening, a woman was sitting by the side of her father who had been lying dangerously ill in bed for some days with a disease which the doctors could not identify. The neighbors came in to offer their services to keep watch over the sick man so that his daughter, who had spent several nights without any sleep, could go and lie down to rest. She thanked them, but refused to do so. Nevertheless, they insisted on remaining, and as it was cold, she invited them to sit round the fire in the kitchen to warm themselves. As her father seemed to be asleep for a little while, she went into the kitchen to speak to her visitors. Of a sudden, they heard the sick man give a terrible cry of pain and fright. They all hurried into his room to see what was the matter, and there, just above the old man's bed, was a huge stinging fly, which hovered round and round him, buzzing in a horrible manner. 
They tried to catch the dangerous insect, but this was not an easy matter, for it buzzed so loudly that it positively menaced those who came near it. From time to time it hurled itself at the limbs of the sick man, and every time it touched him, he gave vent to a shriek of pain. Those who were near him could see large black blisters rising at the spots where the stinging fly attacked him. At last, one of the men who had more courage than the others beat down the gigantic insect with his hat. They picked up its body with a pair of tongs and threw it out of the house, shutting the door tightly so that it could not return to its attack. The deed accomplished, they looked at one another, terrified at what had taken place, and to their horror, they could plainly hear the buzz of the insect outside. The noise was so loud that the windows positively rattled. Then a howl rose outside, a cry so strange that no one present had ever heard the like, and after that, all was silent. They then went back to the bedside of the sick man who had suffered severely and who told them that he had been suddenly awakened by this horrible stinging fly which had hummed in his ears and struck at his body in such a terrifying manner that he felt sure it must be an evil spirit. Now that the insect had been captured and put out of the house, he felt better, but none of the visitors dared to leave the cottage, feeling sure that a sorcerer was mixed up in the affair. They passed the night sitting around the fire, carefully avoiding all mention of the matter, as they were afraid that the noise of buzzing and humming would begin afresh. The next morning, at sunrise, they decided to open the door, and then they saw the huge insect lying on the ground just outside. But the mysterious part of it was that those who were courageous enough to look at it closely stated that it was not the real insect that was lying there, but merely its outer shell or covering, just like the skin sloughed off by a grasshopper and left behind when it changes its shape. This, then, was taken to be proof positive that the stinging fly was not what it had pretended to be, but a wizard in disguise which had intended to do harm to the old invalid, and the horrible cry which had been heard when the insect was thrown out of doors was only the howl of rage uttered by the wizard at the failure of his wicked designs. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As promised at the top of the show, I'd like to provide a bit more on the rewards of joining Bone and Sickle via Patreon. A monthly pledge of $2 provides you access to hundreds of show blog posts in which I share uh, curious tidbits from history, folklore, and films related to our general subject matter. Donating a mere $4 more monthly brings you not one, but two extra episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone and sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. And I'd like to extend our gratitude to a few recent patrons. Thank you to Russell Everett, Rebecca Smelzer, and Leon Permini. And thank you to 
The Cat's Meow for the uh, kind review on Apple Podcasts. I wonder if our Colony of Cats episode had something to do with that. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.